1: Hello there, and you're very welcome to this additional installment of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan with me in studio, my colleagues Harry McGee and Fia Kelly. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome. Later in the programme, we'll be discussing the latest news from the presidential campaign and we'll be talking about next week's budget. But first, we'll be discussing housing, which figures on the front page of the Irish Times today and also figured prominently on Morning Ireland and RTE this morning. A very moving interview with a young woman. Who has been in homeless accommodation in a hotel for two years now. She's eighteen years old. RTE called her Amanda, and this is what she had to say.
2: You're living with stench of people cooking food in rooms rotten away with mould and everything else. I feel like I've been stolen of most of my life time is already flying by it's already October and Christmas will come and then summer and then next thing I know I blink and it's my leaving certain if I have to do my leave certain year there's no chance of me going to college there's no chance of me look, going forward in
0: my education
2: what would you say if, if, if you and Faradkar and Owen Murphy were here
0: get me my house I asked politely the last time get me my house this time
1: and that was Amanda talking to Ortiz M.O. Kelly on RT Radio this morning. And you can hear the full uh, interview on the RTE website. I recommend you have a listen to it. Um, Fiak, your story is about housing more at the policy level um, today. But in a, in a way, that interview, I heard Simon Coveney coming on afterwards and it wasn't exactly an easy wicket to be batting on, you know, in an immediate response to that. It shows how housing is looming over everything at the moment. Yeah, it really is dominating
0: political discourse. Above all other issues, I'd say, apart from Brexit, which is the other uh, big, big, big political issue of the day, health is often cited as you know another big issue facing the government. But I think housing has taken on far more importance for this administration. We just saw that the other day when you saw the housing protests outside Leinster House; it's quite a big protest. Um, and when you, see, I think, in Leinster House, for TDs, when they look outside the gates and they see that number of people there, it it always sends a shiver down their spine.
1: Like, not I saw a quote from one reporter on saying not the usual suspects was well, what the TV it
0: was like. Was it was, there was, yeah, they always look out to see the composition of the crowd, who's in it, what type of people are there, and it was one of those. Like while there was some kind of after afters to the protest where we had people blocking the entrance to government buildings, a lot of the people there were good natured, like students, people of middle incomes, that type of person, and I think. That is what really gets on TD's radar when they see those people coming to the front of Leicester House on a Wednesday lunchtime, and couple that with the int- oh sorry, couple that with the um, interview on Morning Ireland this morning, which is yet another emotive telling of a story. Um, of it's people. emotive motive,
1: but it's also factual. It's she's, 18 a, it's, years old, she's been sorry, in, in this hotel room of for two a,
0: years. It's a motive, but that doesn't as it was, but it doesn't mean that it's not factual. And it's just a me, it's it's a way of bringing. Like we have stuff about various policy issues and planning and procedures yeah. and all this type of thing. But when you you're arrested in your tracks by an interview like that on the radio, that really makes people listen. Like we all remember Emma McVahuna during the cervical care crisis earlier in the summer. That was one of those interviews. This is another, and. We're heading into a period in the winter when this is going to become... We're going to have more people on the streets. We're going to have more people uh, kind of presenting for accommodation. And I think the level of pressure the government's under uh, is really starting to tell... You kind of hear internal rumblings within Fine Gael and the government but Owen Murphy's under pressure, kind of canvassing his colleagues in Fine Gael for support, that they would stand up and say that he's doing his best. Like, this is in private meetings amongst TV's and Senators so that he's actively going around saying the people, you know, can, can you please stick up for me? Those type of indicators show that this is getting to the government, that they realise it's a problem and they realise they have to get on top of it. Harry? I heard that interview two years ago. Emma uh, Kelly
2: did it and she did it again for Morning Ireland this morning and it was heartbreaking two years ago and it's, you know, it's just painful to listen to this morning, to hear the plaintive <coughs> pleas of, of a young girl. This is a girl who is doing her leaving search and has been living in uh, uh, hotel and B&B accommodation Uh, for most of her teenage years, no space, uh, no sense of independence, uh, claustrophobia and constriction, and it is a disgrace. And the government can come out uh, uh, night and day and say, we have a plan rebuilding Ireland, we're going to do this, we're going to use council land, we're going to use public land, we'll have a land commission agency, but they're not worth uh, um, a farthing uh, and and they're out-trumped by one simple interview like that. There, there are priorities that they should be focusing on and they should be solution led and they should that's two years ago that happened mm-hmm. they should have found a solution for that young woman two years ago rather than letting uh, it all uh, dangle on the vine for the past uh, and, two I, and, years. I, and, I, and I do why wonder why she have to go and story a they can complain about the slowness of the process and stuff like that but there are there are ways in which they can have a hierarchy of priorities and make sure that those who are most vulnerable most in need are looked after first, and there is no evidence that that is happening. And, and I do, is, I, I,
1: an I do wonder, Fik. I, I mean, you have a story today about a proposal which seems eminently sensible to try and cut down some of the red tape which is involved, mm. particularly for smaller um, council council housing schemes up until up to kind of twenty or thirty units mm. at a time. The, the kind of infill developments that that urban urban councils might do. Immediately, it struck me looking at this is why didn't they do this three years ago? We've had experts in this studio over the last two or three years Mm. saying that the process is too convoluted and too complicated. Why does it take so long? There
0: seems to be some sort of institutional opposition to moves like this from the Department of Housing because the current situation is a four-step planning process which is overseen by the Department of Housing. Olivia Kelly, our colleague, had a really good piece a couple of weeks ago detailing actually the steps on this process. But there seems to be some... If you talk to people in local authorities around the country, they say there's just resistance from the Department of Housing to let the councils have the power to do this, to kind of... These smaller scale developments, because it's not hundreds of housing, as you say, it's tens. They're much easier to build. You can get it done relatively quickly... But it's just the institutional, I would say, inertia in the Department of Housing, which has really, really been shown up in the last seven or eight years. You know, we've had numerous people through the doors of that department, but the department just doesn't seem capable of grappling with this issue. Like, for example, the land development agency that Harry spoke about, that idea has been kicking around for two years, but they only launched it a couple of months ago. Like, it took so long for them to get something like that, which there was broad agreement on, when in government, this is what we need to do. It took so long because you know, I spoke to people in government, other government departments when they were planning that, and I was like, "Well what, what's to hold and the Department of Housing? They just think it is a pretty dysfunctional department. It cannot operate on the same level as say the Department of Finance, Department of Foreign Affairs. And that it seems to be the problem.
1: Isn't there, isn't there an argument then that, that the opposition parties who are calling for a, a, a state of emergency, I suppose, to be declared, Harry, you know, the government has decried this as pure symbolism, you know, tokenism, but, you know, that if you did something like that, you know, and you rooted out some of those problems in the department because it was a national emergency, you might, you might, you might achieve something. Well, I
2: mean, when does one... How many, how many people have to be declared homeless before it does become a national emergency? There are 10,000 people homeless at the moment, 4,000 of whom are children. You know, there are dozens of thousands of people on council waiting lists around the, 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 the country looking for homes. And then there's still that shortfall in terms of building ordinary bricks and mortars uh, residents for families. And of course, it's a, it's a complicated problem. There wasn't building for a long time. And you can't, it, it is something that you can't provide sure, a solution sure. for overnight. Yeah. And they have come up with, with a raft of solutions. I can think of 20 solutions that they've tried to come up with off the top of my head. Everything from rent pressure zones to mm. repair and lease uh, to, you, to, to, to vacant homes and, and all of that. And, and and appreciate that some of them are difficult. But as Fioch said, there's an inertia there. I think the inertia extends beyond the Department mm. of Housing. It goes across local authorities, across government departments. There is a, a, a lack of urgency because the problem doesn't partic- doesn't relate directly uh, to them, so they have to get stuff done. That's the most important thing. They say,
0: they say give us time, and I remember, and Harry probably remembers too, in 2014 or 2013, Eamon Gilmore and Enda Kenny launching a plan called Construction 2020. That was four or five years ago. The government doesn't have that excuse in its armour anymore.
1: So anyway, I presume this is one of the things that will figure large in next week's budget, Fiat?
0: Yeah, it, everybody says this budgeting has has to be a, a housing budget. Well, we'll uh, wait and see what the extent of it is. Fianna Fáil's big ask as part of this budget has been a 200 million affordable housing scheme and various associated issues such as the Change to the planning procedures that we reported on this morning. So, I think that's going to be the measure of next week's budget. You know, when they speak about affordable housing, what do they mean by it? What income thresholds are they talking about? How soon can that be translated into building? Like, they're talking about action in 2019. So, we're going to see exactly what they have rung from the government from a government point of view i think they believe look we've done nearly pretty much everything we can do we have thrown solutions at this as we said has to take time but i think that's gonna be the main issue next week was what is this affordable housing scheme who does it benefit and when can it get up and running
2: but they also have this massive development plan over the next 20 years and one of the aims of it is to make places other than dublin galway and cork attractive for business uh, for factories for people to live for schools and for education and they have that, that that exists as a paper report at the moment. As far as I can see, nothing has been done to get the wheels in motion. And they need to start moving that as well to try to get people uh, to, to to settle in communities outside Dublin because number one, it it's easier to build, it's cheaper to build, and you can move in people more quickly. But they haven't done anything about that either.
1: In in, in terms of the budget, Firk, you were at the fail pre budget briefing today. Um always a tricky enough. Uh, dance for them at this time of year around the budget which of course can't be passed without them without them sitting on their hands
0: Yeah it's it's this tricky space they find themselves in they seem to have gotten used to it this is the third of the confidence supply the final one of this instalment of confidence supply there may yet be another one we don't know but they've kind of arrived at a situation where they're quite upfront. you know they say we want this our focus is the USC reductions we want an affordable housing scheme we want money for the National Treatment Purchase Fund and they say yeah you know but we're realistic enough to know it. you can't get all this stuff without raising taxes somewhere and they acknowledge that there will probably have to be uh, in, or, sorry, tax rises on the hospitality rate the 9% hospitality rate and That seems and to be a deal though, that seems there it? It
1: it was a bit of resistance to that. that
0: Yeah look it was the independent alliance having the fight they're always going to have, have in budget week or lead up to budget week I think the level it's what's going on now is determining the level at which it will be set and which sectors it will apply to so can you go you don't have two, You can't really have a 9% to 11.5% and a 13.5% so do you go the entire way from 9 to 11.5 for everything do you go from 9 to 13.5 for some sectors like this idea that you can basically apply it to hotels in Dublin is not a runner Michael McGrath even accepts that himself you just can't do that if you're doing to hotels it's hotels across the board so I think what they're probably looking at now is can they go will they sector it out or will they go for one rise, will they bring everything to 11.5 or will they bring certain things to 13.5?
1: Apart from that, are there going to be any surprises in next week's budget, Harry? Are the days of surprises in budget and budgets nearly over?
0: Well,
2: yeah, I think they are. I mean, the last, like, really big surprise was in 2003, uh, December 2003, when Charlie McCreevy announced unilaterally uh, that we would have decentralisation and that turned out to be a disaster. So a little bit like Theresa May calling an early election, you know, you see uh, something happen and you see a kind of a spectacular belly flop and then you realise, mm, maybe we should think twice about doing that. Pascal Donoghue isn't a gambler, isn't cavalier by nature. He's a person who has, uh, has, has pledged his eternal love Uh, to Prudence, to dear Prudence. So Prudence is his watchword Mm. in terms of everything he does in terms of of a budget. So uh, I would be gobsmacked and flabbergasted if he came up. He might have some surprise but it
1: will be a Pascal surprise, not a Charlie McCreevy The odds surprise. are, The odds are that this is an election budget, Fiacke, isn't it? The odds not are that this is... The, the, if you were to go into a bookies and you were given a choice, you could to bet that there, yeah. there will be an election before the next budget or after the next no, budget. In 20, other words, in We're
0: 20-20 oh, people, yeah. Hugh. I'm sure you'd get <laughs> decent enough odds on it, but I wouldn't be quite sure that it's the last budget before the election. Yeah, so. It's a possibility. But if we're going to do an extension of the conference supply deal, like everybody goes, oh, you can't have an election before Brexit happens. It's Generally accepted fact, uh, or it's generally accepted position. Um, so, but the people in Finnegale say, well, you have to signpost the next, the end of the next month for the comp supply deal. So the obvious signpost is budget to budget. So I wouldn't necessarily say this is the final budget.
1: So Harry, you came into the into the studio breathless, so only a few moments right. ago from the from the. Peter Casey, uh, presidential. Was it a launch or just a regular press conference?
2: It was his official launch, uh, hot off the press.
1: uh, You were were breathless both from having to run all the way from it, but also because you were so excited by it. So, well,
2: we were talking about Theresa May's music earlier on this week. If There was music accompanying uh, Peter... Casey, as he walked up to the podium this morning, it might have been John Williams' score for Jaws circa 1977 (laughs) because he has a prey in his sight and that prey is Michael D. Higgins. I mean, all of the other candidates have been really deferential towards President Higgins and he's been a brilliant president. He's been fantastic for the last seven years, but times have changed and we need a new president for a new time, et cetera, et cetera. Variations on that team. Uh, Casey has dispensed with all of that and he's the truly kind of unfiltered... um, uh, President. So he started off this morning, it was his official launch, he gave a speech and he's talking about the diaspora and about wanting to harness the diaspora and it was all so far, so kind of bland. But then when the question and answer um, uh, uh, session began, he didn't take too long uh, to rise uh, to the debate. And there was kind of a volley of criticism at the President. the first instance, he said that he was talking to a taxi driver a couple of weeks ago, and the taxi driver said to him that sure Higgins had done nothing in his seven years and cost us a whole lot of money, and that had resonated with him. And he said, when he looked back, he said the only thing that he'd done that was truly memorable uh, was meet uh, the Queen. And he wouldn't give him any great points for that because that was always pre- pre-arranged. So then he was asked, "Was he were the other candidates too deferential? Uh, to uh, the President and were the media too deferential? And he said, yes, they were. And he said, he, when he went around the county councils, he uh, uh, he had heard the other candidates saying how wonderful the President was. So he said to Sean Goller, well, if he's so wonderful, wh- why are you standing for President? Or if you are more wonderful than he is, when did he stop being wonderful? And uh, then he was asked himself, when did he stop, when, when did you think the President stopped being wonderful? And he said he had stopped being wonderful Uh, two or three years ago and he did have some evidence to back his assertion. He said that in his first year President Higgins had, uh, had participated in 535 events and then there had been a forty-two percent uh, drop off, real accountant there, mm-hmm. uh, and afterwards it was only three hundred and twenty events per year. So he was basically saying that so he was start a drop off after the first year. After the first year, okay. so he was um, saying that there was a flourish at the start, but a tapering off uh, since then. It's nice to
1: get some numbers, Vic, because I mean I have heard this criticism of My- Michael D Higgins, but yeah. I've never actually seen the numbers. I thought the criticism was more that in the last two or three years. The number of public events that had had gone down. Yeah,
2: well, it hasn't dropped uh, in election season. He's been doing quite it a lot right of events up, in right the past five months. So the yeah. so the the eventometer has kind of uh, scared Sterling Stur- Stur- right rallying at
0: the last, you know. But,
2: yeah, uh, but 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 it's nice to see. I mean, there is a kind of uh, an unfiltered. Uh, he, he he's not a fan of Trump politically, but in terms of his style, there's a bit of unfiltered kind of Mo Trumpian thing to him it's that he doesn't. He, he has no uh, difficulty in having uh, a, a go at the characters. He also accused Michael D. of skipping off. Uh, two uh, live uh, uh, debates and he was particularly scathing of one where she went off to meet a, a minor member of the British royal family number 10 mm-hmm. in the line to the throne to have a cup of tea while he could have been debating
0: the issues uh, with the other but five. Yeah,
1: any, any break in the tedium is welcome now. I think, all I think it's all for it. I think like this is Isn't such it? a
0: dull election everybody yeah. says. Harry says everybody's saying how great Michael Thee is. Harry says why are you running against him? Like it's kind of—I think it's great. It's a throwback to kind of more pugilistic politics when people actually had a go at each other, which is what you know a lot of political theater is supposed to be. Out. And what is the presidential election if not political theater?
1: Well, like, also, they, if just, anybody was going—if anybody was going to take this tack first, it was going to be uh, Peter Casey, wasn't it? Because he's probably the the outsider of the yeah, three. He's dragons. a total
0: wild card. But the rest of them are all just speaking in motivational like guff, which you would get at any self-help seminar organised for business types between eight and nine in a hotel in Dublin, like in the morning, like you know what I mean, with coffee and croissant. That's basically what you're getting. At. Pres- this presidential election—it's
1: terrible stuff, Harry, isn't it? I mean, you have to talk to all these people.
2: I, I do, and and the most tedious part of all is listening to them outline, the outline the the vision thing, because the vision thing is kind of you know, <laughs> it's the kind of thing that you hear around a campfire when you're a scout and you're seventeen,
0: and you know, come no, by ah. I, I always imagine you get little name tags with the press conference, like you get into all these business networking events. You know, hi, I'm Harry. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 um it's inspiring. It's
2: meant to be inspiring, but it's always lackluster and not inspiring at all. They want to you know, people want equality in society, diversity. They want to encourage, you know, young Sh- people. Shocking stuff. Old shocking people. Stuff. Yeah.
0: Communities. It's like, it's like Peter Case is like a big, hefty full forward to throw in on a football or hurling match to break up the play
1: because <laughs> a bit it's of a shimassle. Yeah. Like. What <laughs> because what's going to happen now? Next week, the... News focus will be almost entirely on the budget for most of the most of The budget will week, come and go, and I'll say. There's a couple of TV debates in the last week of the thing. Before well, we the know it's going to be over. Yeah, I mean, well, Peter Casey was giving off about the, the, the duration yeah, of the campaign. Yeah, no, Michael as well, D. It? Higgins
2: is not going to participate in the Claire Byrne show on the Monday before, um, either this Monday or the Monday before. Um, and I think they're going to leave a, a, a vacant lectern there uh, not like <laughs> they the margarine use, that they, they
0: might, had. They might have to use a little vacant box. You remember yeah, the last time we did this, he had to stand in a the box. The to famous get apple to box it. Yeah,
2: yeah. It, it yeah, little, little
1: apple. Well, box did somebody
0: fail yeah. to turn up
2: for some debate, or was it? Have I got news for you? And they left a. uh, a empty uh chair. No, I think they left a. <laughs> I think a tub of lard on the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a tub of lard. A tub of lard on the thing, yeah. just to 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 note but
0: that person's presence. The one thing I did, know was watching the TV news last night when Michael D was in Cork, and again he was asked about his. His allowance, to 317,000 euro. And he got quite testy. He got like a a clip on the RT News. He goes, I've told you that. And that's his weakness. He could see it didn't take Mm. long for this to come out. that that He really, really doesn't like questions about the spending. And he really gets annoyed when people put it to him.
2: Well, funnily enough, that was the only thing that Casey didn't criticise him about this morning. He said he he was sure that he was an honest guy and that he spent 317,000 in in an appropriate uh, uh, manner. And he was actually he came to his defence on that particular net point, which was kind of slightly paradoxical <laughs> and ironic. But what Higgins, Higgins' problem with that is that he has to explain it, yeah. and if, if if it is a hundred percent kosher, he has to explain it all, and he has to explain it all before the election takes place. And he also has to um, um, uh, produce the the, the the figures and the receipts. Otherwise, it's going to hound him yeah. for the rest Casey's, of the
0: campaign. Casey's criticism is so like it's so it's, it's a brilliant criticism, but honest but useless, <laughs> Michael D.
1: Higgins. <laughs> There's a, there, there's a slogan, a slogan for the ages. Well, fair play to you, Harry, for bringing a bit of energy into the studio for the first time on the subject of this particular election. You'll be continuing to cover it over the next while and I'm sure, Fiuk, you might be dragged into it as well. And that's it for this additional podcast from Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, we'll be back next Wednesday with our regular weekly podcast, but until till then, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.